Right, we're in the book of Matthew, chapter 6, this morning. If you're new with us, we are in the middle of a series called Build Your Abundant Life. And it's based on Jesus' famous sermon, or most famous sermon, called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 to 7, where he puts forward a visionary manifesto for life, life in the kingdom, he calls it, the kingdom of God, life when God reigns as king in our lives, which is the best possible life. At the end of it, he says it's the, to the one who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is the one who builds their life on the rock. And the one who hears these words and doesn't put them into practice is like a fool who builds their life on sand. And when the storms of life come, they will fall with a great crash. So it's like strong words from Jesus. And we love that high challenge because it's real life. There's no one building your life but you. That's one of the beautiful realities of divine responsibility that he's put upon each and every one of us, created in the image of God, created for a real relationship with God. Yes, we're affected by other people for better or for worse, but no one has the responsibility to build your life with God, to build your life on the rock, to build your life not on the sand. No one has that responsibility for you except you. And so in this whole series, we're looking at those ways where Jesus gives us the divine privilege as he gives us the blueprint, the vision for life. How can we respond by taking responsibility to say, yes, Lord, you're initiating. It's your grace who's with me. It's your power and presence. But I want to do my part to say yes to you so that I'm building my life on you, the rock. And so we're right in the middle of the meat of that, and we come upon this teaching of Jesus. Now, I'm going to warn you ahead of time, I'm going to skip something that's rather important. <laughs> in Matthew 6, I'm going to skip the Lord's Prayer for now. We're coming back to it. But as I was studying this, doing that deep work of, God, what is it that you want to say something popped out that is amazing that I'd never seen before until studying it at this, in this way where the, the Lord's Prayer is actually sandwiched in the middle of kind of a bigger context, a bigger picture of Jesus teaching about becoming genuine in our relationship with God. And so he addresses a few different very common, respected, you could call them religious or spiritual practices of the day that are absolutely still valid today, and we'll see that. The Lord's Prayer comes within that, so we'll come back to it. But there's a bigger picture message that Jesus wants us to hear about genuine relationship with God. So that's what we're going to be going after this morning. So Matthew chapter 6, we're going to go 1 to 6. Then skip the Lord's Prayer, and then go 16 to 18. And we'll come back to the Lord's Prayer probably next week. 
All right, here we go. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when, here's a key word, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who is in secret, who sees in secret, will reward you. And then jumping down to 16, and when you fast... Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. There is a word that stands out here, repeated three times, right in the midst of Jesus talking about three different, important, respected, ongoing spiritual practices. Anyone catch the word? That one's in there, a secret. We're going for, we'll go for that one a little bit later. Good. The other one is what? Hypocrite. Hypocrisy. So Jesus addresses three of the most well-known spiritual practices, religious practices of the day, living generously, you could say, giving to the needy, prayer and fasting. And he challenges us, not if you do them, when you do them, over and over, three times, he says, don't do them as the hypocrites do. He's a little fired up here, right? I mean, this is not just a fluffy little message. He goes after some of the core practices of, of the Jewish people that are good and healthy that he says to keep doing. So this is kind of like the bread and butter, if you will, of their spiritual life. And he says, when you do those, don't be hypocrites. Oh, Okay, <laughs> but he's getting after something unbelievably important. I think I read a poll, or I know I read a poll, and I think if I'm remembering it right, the number one people reason why people don't like church is hypocrites in the church. By extension, what they're saying is the number one excuse, and I'm not saying that, that 
takes people off of the personal responsibility and accountability to seek after God, but that's something that matters. We should look at that kind of stat or concern or cultural pulse. And wow, if the number one reason people don't want to come to church is because of the hypocrites, there's something in there that is deeply revealing about what turns people off, about what the problems might be within the church that are representing God or not representing God. And I believe that's exactly what Jesus is going after here. That hypocrisy matters a whole lot to Jesus. He takes these everyday life spiritual practices and he specifically says we got to be really careful that we're not falling into hypocrisy because if we are, we're missing the point. This word hypocrisy is a very interesting one. It's got a very long history in, in the Greek language used all the way back by Aristotle and Socrates to describe stage actors. Hippocrates was a, a stage actor, a role player, a pretender. And that's exactly what Jesus is addressing. Those folks who were doing good things on the outside, they're giving to the needy. That is a good thing. They're praying. That is a good thing. It's the lifeblood of your spirit is to pray. They're fasting. That's a good thing. And Jesus addresses those good things and he calls them out as pretenders, role players, fakers, people who are in the midst of practicing righteousness out of a motivation not to please God, but to impress people. And that's where they become, or we become, the actors, the role players. As Jesus always does, he gets down to genuine motivation of the heart. God is not impressed with outward actions that aren't aligned with inward conviction and inner transformation. Listen to the language he specifically used uses. In order to be seen, so practicing righteousness, giving to the needy, praying, fasting, and you could add in anything that fits under Jesus' opening line of beware of practicing righteousness. That just means doing good things. I mean, ironically, not ironically, we just finished a whole section on Jesus talking about the practical righteousness or practicing righteousness that is of extremely high standards that Jesus actually believes we can live into, that we can overcome anger and division in relationships by practicing honest, brave, courageous communication. We can overcome lust and adultery and divorce by practicing purity, by practicing these weapons of heaven, by practicing forgiveness, by practicing covenant commitment. 
We can overcome lies and hypocrisy, Jesus goes after, by practicing truth-telling. So Jesus is all about teaching us to practice righteous ways of living. So you could really put anything that you do for God under this category right here of Jesus challenging us, saying, check your motivation. Is your motivation truly to please God or is it to impress people? That's what he's going after. Because he specifically says, if you're practicing righteousness in order to be seen by them, by others, or that they may be praised by others. He's talking about the hypocrites. They are those who practice righteousness that they may be praised by others. And he goes on again two more times to say, that you may be seen by others. He's absolutely dealing with one of the core issues humans face. Who are you living to please? Are you living to please and impress God? Or are you living to please and impress and be seen by and praised by other people? And the answer, if we're honest, is probably a challenging mix of both. This is a tough one to put to death. You think about the world we live in today, kids, grandkids, they are growing up in a world. Talk about learning to live by the opinions and praise of others. Social media is so dangerous for that. You can feel it, right? Yeah. Even if you post genuinely of like, hey, it's fun having my friends see our family do this or, 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 or an accomplishment of that, and there's, there's nothing inherently wrong with sharing a picture, what's on your mind, and you're being potentially real with friends. Like, hey, I'm proud of this moment, or this is fun, or this matters to me. That's, that can all be very real and genuine among friends, and there's healthy place where friends can encourage you, but it's also very, very easy, and I know we can all feel it. As soon as you post something, it's how many people like me. What are the comments? Am I getting praised by people? And it's very easy, and there are studies after studies are showing that this world we live in now pushes us towards narcissism, where we live for the praise of other people because our lives are constantly, if we choose, lived in public so they can be seen by others. It's literally the same thing Jesus is addressing. If you do it in order to be seen by others or in order to be praised by others, the biggest problem with that is you're not, you can't do that and also stay in that genuine place of just wanting to be seen by God and just wanting to live for the audience of one and just wanting to be praised or commended or to have God's pleasure. 
And that's what Jesus is going after, and especially when it comes to our walk with God and practicing those good and right things in our walk with God. So Jesus comes along with a very simple, as he almost always does, it's really never unclear, it's just really challenging. You're going to have to die to yourself. (laughs) That's the challenging part. But he comes along with a very simple message, and it's just quite simple. Don't be a faker. (laughs) Don't be a hypocrite. Just be genuine with God. While that is so challenging because we're going to have to put to death that part of ourself that lives for the praise of people, to be seen by others, to impress others, It's also unbelievably freeing if we can begin to walk down that road. But let me back up for a moment and say, where on earth do we get the strength (laughs) to even begin to be free with the reality that we don't have it all together? Because that's the fear of of what is going to get exposed, right? That's why... The fakers, the hypocrites do those things. It's why we want to be seen by others. It's why we want to get praised by others. Part of that deep motivation is because we don't want the reality to be exposed that we don't have it all together. So we put on the the hypocrites, the facade, the role. So Jesus sets us free from that in multiple ways, on multiple levels, and the first and foremost one is he's perfect, so we don't have to be. That's really the foundation of our whole relationship with God. 1 Peter 3.18 says it like this. This is one of Jesus' apostles. They knew him. Peter knew Jesus well, knew what he was all about, lived out this kingdom life that Jesus offered And after many years of living this new life and reflecting upon it, this is what Peter says in 1 Peter 3.18. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. It's a simple phrase, but it's life-transforming if we can grab on. Jesus died on the cross, the righteous which is him, for the unrighteous, which is us. That's why Jesus went to the cross, to be the perfection that we could not be. The whole foundation of life with God in his kingdom is the righteous for the unrighteous, the perfect for the imperfect. That's where it begins It begins with the reality that we don't have it all together and we never will. We are imperfect. We are far from perfect. We are fallen short. We have gone astray. In fact, we are on our own strength, as we looked at a couple weeks ago, enemies of God by our own choice. But while we were enemies of God, he sent his perfect son And his perfect son died for the imperfect so that we could become the righteousness of God, it says. 
so that we could receive Jesus' righteousness and it wraps us in a robe of righteousness so that when God looks at us, he sees the perfection of his son when we trust in him. That's what Colossians 1 says. Once you were alienated from God, you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. Check this out. To present you, and notice that reconciled is in the past tense. In God's eyes, in God's sight, it's already done. How does God see you? In Christ, he sees you as already reconciled, already, what does it say next? To present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. That's your standing already in God's eyes through Christ. The way God can see you now, you are already holy, already blameless or without blemish. And I think my favorite part is without accusation, meaning no one can accuse you of being anything less than holy and blameless in God's eyes through Christ. You can't even blame yourself. You can't even accuse yourself of that. When you are accusing yourself of that, you are outside of God's perspective on you. And you certainly shouldn't let the other, other people or the enemy accuse you of that. That's where you got to, man, learn to wrap your identity in the robe of Christ's righteousness. This is not about you being perfect on your own strength. You never are. This is about learning the greatness of Christ's sacrifice and the greatness of Christ's righteousness that we get wrapped in through faith in him as our Lord and Savior so that in God's sight, we're holy, blameless, right now. The more that becomes real, I believe the more we are free to be real and genuine with where we're at in our own character imperfections. We're still on the journey of growth so that our character can be more and more conformed to be like Christ. We looked at that last week. So that's the growth journey, but part of the reality of the growth journey when you confess that you need to grow, that's a confession of your imperfection, of your sin, of where you don't have it all together. You're holy and blameless in God's eyes through Christ, but you want to grow. You want that character transformation. You want that Christ-like character and nature to become yours to where those things that you used to struggle with don't become your struggles anymore, where no sin has to become your master, where you can overcome all those things that Jesus talks about of anger and division and lust and lies and adultery and hypocrisy and evil when it happens to you and vengeance and hatred. You can actually overcome all of those things in your heart. Your character can be transformed to be like Christ. But you got to admit that it's not. 
And that's what Jesus is going after. It doesn't do you or God or anybody else any good to pretend to put on that play actor's mask and pretend that you are already at a place that you are actually not. And what I find about this is that's so awesome and good news is there's so much freedom in this. You, you don't have to be a faker in your walk with God. God, in fact, hates when we're fakers. That's what Jesus is going after. He hates hypocrisy. He wants you to be genuine with where you're at. And to me, that's freedom. I, I mean, this is, to me, one of the most attractive things about the gospel is that because I'm perfect in Christ, I'm holy in God's eyes through Christ's perfection, now I can be authentic and genuine in my walk with God. I don't have to pretend that I have it all together. I don't have to slap on that Sunday morning smile and pretend that there are no struggles. God, in fact, hates that. <laughs> like He wants me to be real and genuine in my relationship with him. To me, that's, that's an amazing amount of freedom to have a genuine relationship with God. So when you have doubts, you're honest about those doubts. When you have insecurities, you're honest with God about those insecurities. When you have struggles, you're honest with God about those struggles. And you don't allow yourself to become a hypocrite that on the outside says, I'm way up here, and on the inside, you're down here. There's so much freedom in not having to pretend because that gap right there is toxic to the soul. It's a heavy burden to bear. We've all felt it. We all can feel it because there is that still thing inside of us that needs to die that says, well, I, I really, I want to impress them. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a little bit of a, of a lie right now. I'm going to say I'm here when I'm here. I'm going to pretend I'm here when I'm here. And Jesus has come to set us free from that hypocrisy. He just quite simply says, don't do the hypocrisy thing. In any way that you're practicing righteousness, the core things of good spiritual practices, but any way in which you're practicing righteousness, meaning you're living out the daily walk with God, in any way, when you're living out that daily walk with God, don't be a hypocrite. You can check your motivation by two things in here. You can purify your motivation by two things he talks about. And, and, and let me, I'll get there in a moment, but let me just say, I, I truly believe this is one of the most critical issues facing the church today. It always has been, so maybe that's not even, a, that's, maybe that's a worthless comment. I don't know. It's not a revelation. If Jesus is going after it, it's just true. Maybe what I'm trying to say is I can feel it. In myself, I can feel it in the body of Christ. I grew up in the church. I grew up going to Christian school. I, I, I lost count and tried to stop counting how many of my friends walked away from Christianity for this reason right here. But the crux of it was, it wasn't them getting caught in hypocrisy 
it was the generation above them wanting outward conformity at a higher value than inward genuine conviction. And so they were bred into hypocrisy. And so as soon as they're old enough as adults, they quote-unquote walk away. And my conviction is, no, they didn't walk away. They never had it. I mean, I've been through so many Bible classes, you know, where it's like, and, and I got to be careful here. <laughs> I love the Bible. <laughs> I love truth. But there's such a challenge when passing on our faith, in particular, to the next generation where we're easily pleased with outward conformity. Oh, you, you said the Bible verse back to me? Good. They may be on their highway to hell and know the Bible verse. Jesus says the demons know the Bible. Like, I'm trembling as I say that because it's like the, 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 the Bible matters so much. The truth matters so much. But it has to be shared in a way where as, as, as the stewards of the next generation, we're doing, we're, we're doing the best we can to have our pulse on this hypocrisy issue? And are we coercing them into outward conformity while their heart is far from me? Because if so, it's a disservice. And we have to say, God, help me find that pulse of, of authenticity to where, yes, we want to teach them the word. We want to show them the way. We want to show them the practices of righteousness. And, 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 but we want to also do it in a way where they have a freedom and space to grow so that their knowledge and information is, is growing commensurate to genuine encounter with God. If it's not, we're breeding hypocrites who will walk away. And... and I, that's, there's no easy way to do that. That's where I'm trembling because the fear of God is in me as I say it. And I'm and meaning like, because I can feel that the only solution is a fear of God in us. A trembling before God of God help me. I need your spirit to show me the way. I need your wisdom to show me every step. It is not a formula. The next generation is not going to be saved by a formula. I mean, why? When Jesus is interacting with different people in the Gospels, why does he say something different every time? I believe he's modeling for us that perfect listening to the spirit that balances the, both the, the, the spirit and truth. The truth of what they need with the right where they're at in their life, in their walk with God for that healthy, spirit-filled, wise challenge of 
their next step. <sighs> I'll move on. It, maybe this is an open-ended conversation. There's no, this is not an easy solution, so maybe I'll throw it out there as make this conversation with the Lord. Make this conversation with your spouse. Make this conversation in your life groups. Make this conversation with your friends because there there's tension here. For the sake of our children, they're worth it. <laughs> right? With our children. Hey, with your children. With your children. That's it. That's a good one right there. When you feel them pushing back, don't just dismiss it as, well, you're unspiritual, you just need more. Maybe what they're pushing back on is they can feel that they're at their limit of authenticity in the moment. No, I don't want to pray right now. Maybe that's not that they're unspiritual and we just need to force them. Maybe that's they're genuinely in that moment at the limit of, of their authenticity. And rather than force it and force them to be hypocrites in the moment, we say, Holy Spirit, lead me to a creative solution right now. To meet them where they're at. So two things that Jesus says in here that help check our motivations. Secrecy and reward. Someone mentioned that word secret. That's a good, good word because that is what Jesus says. In contrast to being hypocrites, practice your righteousness in secret. Now, I don't believe Jesus means that there is never a time and a place for your true, genuine walk with God to in any way be public. That's not what he means. I mean, he said at the beginning of his whole sermon in Matthew 5, 16, that let your light shine so that... Your deeds will be seen and people will give glory to your Father in heaven. Your good deeds will be seen by others and it will be so evident that God is in it and upon it. It's not your strength. It's not your amazing character that you can do on your own. It's God in your life transforming you and people are impressed by God. So, that's a very outward practicing. Letting your light shine. Being the salt of the earth. Having a righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees. So that's a tension with Jesus saying, practice these things in secret. And now he does say, go pray in secret. That, there's a time for that. But Jesus also prays in public. He encourages others to pray in public. His disciples pray in public. So this is getting down, I believe, this word secret has everything to do with the motivation of your heart. And let me try a translation. By saying, let it be done in secret, 
which is in direct contrast with being seen by others in order to have the praise of others. Let it be does, done in secret. Let it be done, I believe he means, in the secret place of your heart where you exist for an audience of one. So it's a secret in the sense of you don't care who sees it or who doesn't. It's a secret in the sense you're not doing it for others. It's a secret in the sense of you are doing it just for God. It's a secret in the sense that you're saving your most special, intimate emotions and motivations for that audience of one. Isn't that what a secret carries in a way? You don't share secrets with everyone. They're special, intimate places in your heart that very few deserve to be invited into. I think it's that notion of secret where Jesus is saying, save the best, save that secret place in your heart's motivations, that intimate, raw, created in the image of God for relationship with God first and foremost. Don't soil that with being impressed by people. May that secret place of your soul be reserved for God. And then know that there is reward. What is the reward? Well, let's get into the scripture here. Jesus says it like this. By inference, we know what he means by reward because he tells us the contrast. He says, when we participate in that hypocrisy of doing something on the external that we say is for God, but it's really to be seen by others, to be pleased by others, to please others, to be praised by others, Jesus says, you got your reward. That's all you're going to get. Your motivation was to be seen by others, praised by others, so you got what you wanted. You got your reward. And then he says, in contrast, when you live out your faith, your practicing of righteousness from that secret place, God will reward you. Well, what's the contrast? Instead of the motivation of being seen by others so they praise you and commend you. I believe Jesus is saying, you live from that secret place of, I just want to please you, God. And when you live out the life of God, these the prayer and fasting and giving and whatever other outward acts of righteousness, you live the ways of God from that secret place of wanting to please him, your reward is you please him. Your reward is the pleasure of God on your life. You get what you want. You get what you're asking for. 
The secret motivation is, God, I just want to please you. And when that's your motivation, you can trust that there is a smile from heaven saying, oh, man, I am pleased with that motivation. And that is the reward. And if relationship with God is truly the goal, there is no greater reward than that secret, intimate fellowship, genuine walk with God from that secret place where the reward is communion with him. Everything you do is for ultimately for communion with him to please him, and the reward is you see that smile from heaven.